Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We're going to read the Bible now. Um, And the reading is from John chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. And if you've got a church Bible, that's on page 1064. John 2, beginning at verse 12, on page 1064. After this, he, that's Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you very much, Eloise, for your prayer, and Mark for reading for us. I have to say that um, I really do hope that Eloise's prayer will be answered tonight. As I have looked at this passage afresh, I have truly been amazed at the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the purpose of of this particular series, indeed, of, of the whole of our time together this year, is to be reminded again of the wonder and the glory of Christ well, let you, uh, before we look at this passage, would you join me for a brief prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would open our eyes this evening to behold wonderful things in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a little over 30 years since the mass demonstration in Tiananmen Square on the 4th of June, 1989. And uh, some here, 
will remember the powerful image of a Chinese citizen stepping in front of a tank coming to break up the crowd. He bravely, stubbornly stepped in front of the tank, refusing to move, forcing the tank and a whole line of tanks behind it to stop. If we remember, the tank tried to, to, to move around him, and, and he wouldn't allow it, just stepping to his side to stop the moving tank moving forward. You see, he was so evidently distressed by the affront to his own personal freedoms and liberties by the state that enough was enough. He was burning with zeal, and there was nothing that was going to stop him. As the watching world looked on, there was nothing that was going to move him. He would make his point, whatever the outcome, to him personally. And he subsequently became known as the Tank Man. 2,000 years earlier, Jesus showed similar zeal and passion against an oppressive institution. And Jesus alone took it upon himself to stand against the oppression and abuse and the corruption of the Jewish religious institution. And we know that Jesus chose to do this, to make his point regardless of the outcome, regardless of what would happen to him. We come this evening to another dramatic moment in the Gospel of John. Uh, we've already seen water turned into wine. And this evening we'll see Jesus all but start a riot in the clearing of the temple in Jerusalem. And we'll see that it's a, a story full of symbolism and loaded with the fulfillment of Old Testament imagery. The old has gone and the new has come. And John gathers this event around three factors, where Jesus was, what he did, and what the disciples learned by watching what he did. And our story begins actually in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 2. And here John condenses about a week of time into two short verses concerning Jesus' whereabouts. Verse 12, after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Now we know from the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke uh, that Jesus and his family relocated from Nazareth to Capernaum at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, and while Jesus was in Capernaum for those uh, few days, while he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, he calls four fishermen the brothers James and John and Peter and Andrew. And he says to them, come and follow me and become fishers of men. No sooner had the, the newest recruits, if you like, jo who join the team, we see here that they're on the move. We see there at the end of verse 12 that effectively they all jumped in a car. It's probably a people carrier actually. And together with Jesus' mum and, and family, they head south to the capital, to Jerusalem, for the Passover. Now, Jesus had no doubt been up to Jerusalem for this festival on many occasions over the years. And he'd seen the, the disgraceful things going on in the temple and decided not to act. But this time, this time it's, it's different. See, he's now going up to Jerusalem, not just as a regular punter, but as the Messiah. And this time, 
He intends to do something about it. He intends, actually, to fulfill a prophecy given in the book of Malachi, which is, of course, the final book in the Old Testament, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. So in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, and he will purify the sons of Levi, the priestly tribe of Israel. So this then is the background to what happens next. And John tells us the details in verse 14, 15, and 16. Take a look. You can't help, can you, as you read these verses, that there are literally years of pent-up frustration in these actions. Jesus takes a cord of whips and drives out the people, selling cattle, sheep, and doves. He drives them out from the temple courts. He overturns the tables of the money changers and scatters their coins all across the floor of the temple courts, saying, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. It'll actually not be the last time he'll have to do this. He'll clear the temple again at the end of his ministry. Now, we saw last week, didn't we, how the Apostle John takes great care in the way that he writes his gospel accounts. See, John writes it as an invitation to believe in Jesus. It's an invitation to you and to me to step into the story with Jesus, to come and see for ourselves what we make of this man called Jesus. And last week... You remember, we we were uh, joined the wedding, if you like, as as imaginary guests. So I want to suggest uh, this evening that we we imagine ourselves at Jesus' side as a young disciple. Almost certainly of similar age of many at the top end of youth, 17, 18. Would you just imagine with me what the disciples felt While this was going on, as they're watching, as they're observing, they must have been asking themselves, is Jesus trying to start a riot? Now imagine how embarrassed they must have been by the the actions of Jesus. They'd not been with him very long. They did not know him very well. They've been attracted, haven't they, by the the amazing things he said and the the amazing things he did. And they believed with all their hearts that there was something special about Jesus. They may well have even seen that there was some kind of divine quality about him that reflected the very character of God himself. And they were committed to follow him. And yet, we see here that the first thing he does is to embarrass them like this. It's why it's such a memorable event for them. As I was reading this, I was thinking about an analogy, and it's, you know, it's like that time that your dad can't help himself. You know the one? He has to go and embarrass you. And worse than that, he has to do it in front of your friends, and you're scarred for life. Not that I've ever embarrassed my own sons. So three lessons, I suggest, burned themselves unforgettably into the disciples' minds as they watched our Lord at work. The first was an immediate impression. It's all about worship. Now they say, don't they, that first impressions last. 
And Jesus makes quite the first impression on these young disciples. They see here a a man filled with passion, and they're reminded, interestingly, of King David, who, of course, they will have read about loads since they were little boys in in Pathfinders. And, And they remembered David's passion for the worship of God in the temple back in the day. Look at verse 17. The disciples remembered that it is written in Psalm uh, verse 16. The disciples remember that it is written in Psalm 69. Now that's a that's a psalm of David, or, or, or a messianic psalm, speaking of the sort of the coming of Christ. And this is what we read there in verse 17: "Zeal for your house will consume me; it will burn me up." Now, what we know of King David, we can see David saying those very words, can't we? but they're just as true for Jesus as well. Passion here for the honor of God's house will seize hold of me and devour me and make me to act. You know, they came maybe for the, for the first time, perhaps, as these disciples watched Jesus cleansing this temple, the quiet realization in their hearts of the divine refusal to put up with anything that is impure. They began to understand that God does not compromise with evil. He desires pure worship. Now, I was doing a little bit of research this week. I was fascinated. I just wonder how many people would have been at the Passover. And apparently, one scholar that I came across estimates that there would have been two and a half million people in Jerusalem for the Passover which, of course, included the the Jewish diaspora that has spread all across the Roman Empire. And they gathered and they came to sacrifice at the temple. Now, you may well realize this, but the entire sacrificial system in Jerusalem uh, uh, and the temple was controlled by the Levitical priests, and it was a system that was corrupt. It was an opportunity, you see, to exploit the vulnerable and take advantage of the regular worshiper by actually charging over the odds for the animals or birds that every worshiper needed for a sacrifice. You see, only those animals suitably approved by the priests could be sacrificed. If it had the slightest blemish or imperfection, it was rejected. And the priests, you know, they sort of had that sort of uncanny way of finding something wrong with almost all the livestock brought into the temple courts from home. So it was, quite honestly, just simply easier to pay the inflated price for animals sold in the temple courts, making the Levi priests a tidy profit every time. The priests also made a a killing at this time of year from the annual temple tax due, equivalent to about two days' salary. And the coins, of course, those coins which bore the image of the Roman emperor were considered too unclean to be found in the precincts of the temple. That's not a problem, because the temple just happened to have its own coinage to be exchanged. How convenient. Making a tidy profit for the money changers and a cut of the profit for the priests. So the Passover here was a a great money earner for the temple authorities with little concern for worship. And Jesus is evidently angry on behalf of the vulnerable worshipper who's being exploited. Now, you, you can imagine, can't you, that the sort of bystanders would have been cheering Jesus on as he cleansed the temple. 
See, Jesus is cross that religious people who should know better are abusing their position of authority. It's the same passion that drove Martin Luther to react so strongly to the sale of the indulgences to the poor and vulnerable in the 16th century, exploiting their naive faith. Sadly, we've seen, don't we, that the same exploitation today in the wealth and prosperity gospel with ministers paid multi-million pound salaries while their congregation live in poverty. Jesus is cross about that. It's utterly unbiblical. You know, it brings shame on the name of Christ whenever clergy or ministers in position of leadership abuse their position of authority and the flock of God suffer. And Jesus is the first to come to their defense. He is victim-centric. He feels their pain and he is angry on their behalf. Jesus then is deeply upset about the exploitation of the worshippers in Jerusalem. That is clear. But he's also, note, very angry at the desecration of the temple itself as a place of worship. Do you see here why? Verse 16. It's his father's house. It's a holy place where God, his Father in heaven, manifested his glory. It's there where the Shekinah glory came and descended upon the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. It was God's house. And Jesus, when he comes to to Passover to celebrate along with everyone else, senses something of the shame of the way that it is being treated. He feels righteous anger and indignation. Yes, anger. It's right to be angry. Be angry and sin not, the Bible says. It doesn't say that it's wrong to be angry. It's wrong to be angry and out of control. It's wrong to be angry when there's no right for you to be angry. But anger in and of itself is part of the instinctive response of holiness towards wickedness and evil. It's why we're angry, aren't we? When we see the impact of abuse of any kind. And here the house of God is being rendered as a den of thieves. As a place of commerce. The house of God is being abused. This is about worship. Now you've come... Uh, this evening, and you ask yourself, what's this story about? It's, a, it's an interesting little story. You imagine Jesus with a cord of whips, and he's trying to get these sheep and cattle out, and, and that is all very dramatic. But something extraordinary is taking place in the temple of God. It's about the worship of God. You see, you don't trifle with the worship of God. John Calvin said these words. Why then does Jesus drive the buyers and sellers out of the temple? 
It is that he may bring back to its original purity the worship of God, which has been corrupted by the wickedness of people. Do you see the point? How dare you treat my father's house in this way? That's what Jesus is saying by his actions. Now, incidentally, the, uh, the temple courts uh, where the trading is taking place, or, or the court of Gentiles, as it was also known, is where any, any God seeker, anyone who wanted to find out uh, about, about uh, the Jewish religion could come and, and then they could ask questions and they would hear about the faith, about the one true living God. But with all this sort of commerce and, uh, and commotion, uh, they were actually hindering people from coming to know God. It desecrated God. It was worship without reverence. And worship should always be reverent. Now, I was chatting recently with a, with a young man who is considering Anglican ministry. And he was talking to me about his, his conversion experience. And actually, really interestingly, he was talking about the impact that Christian worship had had on him. And uh, of how being in the same room as Christians singing and praising God prompted within him a, a desire to do the same. He was caught up in it. And as he described it, he, he realized that in that moment as he was singing, he realized, surely God is in this place. Now, I wonder if someone trying to find out more about God walked through those doors this evening, or maybe you're, you're, you're sitting here tonight. I wonder if that is your response I wonder if that's your response this evening. Surely God is in this place. You know, I hope so. I'd like to think so. I believe so. You know, in a congregation of this size, I'm sure that there are numerous different views about what worship is. And I'm sure we could talk about it long into the night if we stayed on and had a Q&A. And you know, I guess, I say this gently, but I guess there's a sense, isn't there, in which it's almost irrelevant what our view of worship is. Rather, we need to be asking, what is God's view of worship? You see, when, the, when we gather like this together to worship, there is a responsibility on those of us who lead you in worship to prepare properly and to lead in a, in a God-centered way. And let me assure you, as your vicar, that we work very hard at it. We take it very seriously. It's an utmost priority to us. But there is also a responsibility on all of us as we worship to come with the right posture. Not just to sort of rock up on a, on a Sunday evening, but to come expecting to meet God. To come praying with that, that friend who maybe doesn't know Jesus. Praying for people who you, even this evening, are sitting there and puzzled and questioning. Praying that God would speak to them. And what kind of worshiper does the Lord desire? Well, according to Psalm 51, someone who brings a humble spirit and a contrite heart. Someone who is willing to, to listen and engage and let God's spirit convict and challenge us through the preaching of his word, through the singing of songs and prayers. 
And such a worshiper, the Lord promises, he will not despise. My friends, brothers, sisters, do you have that kind of zeal for the worship of God? Do you have that kind of zeal that is taken up with the honor and the majesty and the wonder and the glory of God? See, that should be our chief concern. Now, C.H. Spurgeon said this. Let me read these words to you. If sinners are zealous in their sins, should not Christians be zealous for their God? If the things of time can stir the human passions, should not the realities of eternity have a greater and more tremendously moving force? If these people who spend and be spent and stretch every nerve and run the race merely for the crown of politics or of of ambition, where are we? What idlers, what lazy bones are we that we pursue the things of God but with half a heart. So let's not pursue the worship of God with half-heartedness. That's the first thing that the disciples, uh, disciples learned. It's all about worship. This is their immediate impression from the cleansing of the temple. But there's a second lesson I would suggest the disciples learned. And the second lesson comes as this. It's, it, it comes as a, a delayed reaction. It's all about Jesus-centered worship. Now, with the outer outer court of the temple cleared, the, the, the temple authorities, I would suggest, do have the right to question Jesus' credentials for such an action. And there in verse 18, we see they do. And they say to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, it's interesting, isn't it, actually, that they haven't just sort of immediately gone out and and arrested Jesus. And the fact that they haven't done that, it suggests, at least to me in reading this, that they may well suspect that Jesus is a prophet and someone who should be respected. And Jesus answers them, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, we see here, don't we, the Jews are absolutely incredulous this reply. Verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build, Jesus. How are you going to raise it in three days? A misunderstanding, of course, arises because they focus on the purely natural. They miss what Jesus is really talking about. And of course, there in verse 21, John explains that Jesus is really talking about the temple of his own body. It's actually amazing when you look at this story about how everyone involved with it was so blind to what the meaning of this event was. So take the Jews. You know, they, they expected, we know that the Jews had been waiting for the Messiah for 400 years and they expected the Messiah to give them certain signs to indicate that he was the Messiah. And one of the signs, the prophet Malachi prophesied, was that the Messiah would suddenly come to the temple and purify the sons of Levi. Kind of just happened. Right in front of their noses. Jesus has done that. They've been waiting for 400 years, but they did not recognize him. Instead, what they say is, Jesus, Jesus, give us a sign. What sign do you have that you are the Messiah? 
and Jesus' answer, of course, was, was to give them really the only sign that would have any real meaning to them, the sign of his own resurrection. But once again, the Jewish authorities missed it. You'll even notice, verse 22, that the disciples missed it. Notice, do you know how blind they are? They didn't catch the meaning of the three days answer until after the resurrection. When the risen Lord stood in their midst. When they saw the prints of the nails in his hands and the wound in his side and realized incredibly that he was alive again. You know, one can imagine, can't you, that they, they must have been talking about this and, and talking amongst themselves after the resurrection. And one of them probably said something like, remember when he first cleansed the temple? Do you remember what he said? Do you remember that? And one of the others probably said, oh yeah, I remember that. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. We didn't know what it meant back then, but now we see the real temple was not a building, but it was his body. They learn that bodies are the temples of God. A building is merely a, a figure, a shadow that prefigures what is to come. The temple had always been, you see, but a picture of the true house of God. It points forward to a true place where people will meet and worship the living God. Now there are some mysteries, some biblical truths that are hard to explain. And one of those is the mutual indwelling of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. There is a sense in which they all reflect a bit of the other. And don't ask me to explain it. But John has a go here, bravely. He has a go there in John chapter 14, verse 11, and sensibly, I suggest, quotes Jesus directly. Believe me when I say, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So therefore, it is the human body of Jesus that uniquely manifests the Father and becomes the focal point of the manifestation of God to humanity. The living abode of God on earth but also the fulfillment of all that the temple meant and the center of all true worship. You see, in this human temple, the ultimate sacrifice would take place. Within three days of death and burial, the true temple would rise from the dead. See, what we have in this section is, is a little hint I guess it's more than a little hint. It's a big hint from Jesus about the abolition of the sacrificial system. You see, the sacrifices are being rendered unnecessary and useless. And worship is being deepened. You see, there's a, a new place where God can be found in Jesus Christ, the new temple. It's what John chapter 1 verse 14 is talking about. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or untented, or tabernacled, or templed among us. See, there's the key. The worship of God is deepened 
through our relationship with Jesus. See, in Jesus, we meet God face to face. Jesus is the, the temple of the glory of God. Jesus is the center of true worship. See, Jesus brought our worship up close and personal. So we do not need to, to, to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate particular festivals, to meet with God in the temple. In Jesus, we have, through his Spirit, direct access to the Father wherever we are. So even now, even in this, even in this moment, we're able to respond to him as his disciples. As he says this evening, come, come, follow me. We're able to, to respond to him with our thoughts, with our worship, with our prayers of praise, which he hears. Jesus is the, the temple of God in which we meet with God personally. Now, this thought may already have crossed your minds, but it only occurred to me this week as I was sort of working on this, on this sermon. Now, I think you'd agree uh, that we also, according to 1 Corinthians, we are temples of the living God. That's right. And we're learning that real temples are not buildings, they are bodies. And Paul says in the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, which you have received from God? And this is, this is the thought that occurred to me just a, a couple of days ago. Is it too much of a stretch to draw from the story of Jesus cleansing the temple that the worship of God in our own precincts should be pure. That the Lord of the temple cares about the inward clutter, confusion, and sin that may be in our lives, and he will not make peace with it. That Jesus is zealous to cleanse it. So this leads then into the final thing the disciples remembered. The first impression was that it's all about worship. Their delayed reaction was, was that it's all about Jesus-centered worship. And their lasting conviction will be that it's all about Jesus-centered worship after God's own heart. See, Jesus will not entrust himself to those who do not desire to be a worshipper after God's own heart. Now the question has often been asked over the years, what happened to Tank Man? And the truth is, is we still don't know for certain. Although it is alleged a few months after he was arrested and taken away and placed in prison, he was one day hauled out in front of a firing squad and shot. His zeal had cost him his life. See, when the temple authorities asked for a sign, the only sign that Jesus will give them is the sign that will cost him his life. The sign that validates every word that Jesus spoke. The sign that confirmed every attribute that Jesus reflects. The sign that eventually consumed him. The sign of the cross the sign of death and resurrection. 
We see there in verse 23, notice that Jesus hung around Jerusalem for the rest of the Passover festival. And we see there he performed miracles or signs, and and many actually believed in his name. I mean, honestly, if you were there in Jerusalem at that time and, and Jesus was going around and you know, he, was, he was healing a child here or he was feeding 5,000 or he was turning water into wine, wouldn't you like those miracles? Wouldn't those sort of miracles that you know, you, you'd really want to be part of those? You know, that's fantastic. And if you hang around with Jesus, you get the finest glass of wine you've ever had. I mean, you want to enjoy that, don't you? You wouldn't want to miss out on that kind of miracle. And I imagine if that was the case, you'd be caught up in the enthusiasm and you'd believe as well, wouldn't you? I believe this is, this is good, this is great. But I want you to notice something in verse 24. Look closely at this because it's very important this evening. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Isn't that puzzling, don't you think? Because he knew all people. He knew their hearts and their real motives. Verse 25. Now, if we had the time, we could read on in John's Gospel. And actually, it's amazing how often people see a sign they like and they instantly believe, of course, I'm going to believe in Jesus. But we see that not all faith is saving faith. It's spurious faith. If you just turn over, if you don't mind, just to chapter 8 very quickly. And if you look at verse 31 of chapter 8, you'll notice there that the Jews believe in him. There at the beginning. Got that? But then Kashtari to verse 59, by the end, they want to stone him. Incredible. Ultimately, because of the claims that Jesus makes about himself and ultimately the claims that Jesus makes on his listeners' lives, on your life and on my life. You see, many were ready to believe in Jesus for the miracles, for the signs, for the things he would do for them and for their convenience, of course. But this is the point. Jesus will not accept as his disciples those who are not willing to believe in the sign of the cross. Those disciples who are not willing to deny themselves and take up their own cross and follow Christ. Those who, as we saw last week, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, who are willing to submit and trust to do as Jesus asks. Those who are committed to bow the knee to his lordship and say, Master, what will you have me do? That is the kind of disciples he's looking for. That is real and sincere and genuine faith. Well, our time has has passed, but if you wouldn't mind, just allow me one final thought. Now, it's clear in this account, actually, when you think about it, that many of the regular worshippers in the temple, they've been going up to, to Jerusalem, probably for years, many of these regular worshippers in the temple were unaware there was anything out of the ordinary taking place in the temple. I mean, after all, money changing was necessary, wasn't it? Selling animals was necessary. They'd probably seen it for generations. Through the years, it had, it, it had all sort of crept inside the temple until people were probably unaware that anything was actually wrong with the practice. But Jesus knew And he refused to compromise with it. I put up with it and forced the issue so people saw what God saw when he looked at the temple.
And this is what John wants us to grasp this evening. You see, Jesus will force us to see that issue of sin in our life, in our temple, the way that God sees it. He refuses to put up with our inward impurities. It's his home after all as well, isn't it? He dwells within us. Why should he put up with it? See, we are dealing with a God of reality, a holy God who cannot be fooled. See, when we, when we come to him, sort of justifying our actions, excusing them, fooling ourselves, we find him refusing to commit himself to us. Is it surprising? But when we come in worship that is Jesus-centered, that is humble with a contrite spirit, we will find a God who will always be there, willing to deal with us, willing to to reveal himself to us if we do not defend our sin. See, when we admit the wrongdoing, when we admit those things, when we come asking to be cleansed and, and freed, he will never turn us away. He will never deal with us harshly. You know, the the cleansing of that temple was a memorable day on the lives of those young men. They would never forget what Jesus did. Not because he embarrassed them, but because ultimately he saved them. Now, I would love it this evening as we draw to a close that tonight was a memorable event for you. Let me encourage you, if you have been on the cusp, on the edge of leaning into Christ, of asking Him to come and be your Lord and Savior, why not this evening? Why not invite Him to come into your temple courts to bring cleansing, to bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring renewal, to bring life, to bring hope? It may be that you've done that in time past, but you know, you know that over time you've allowed patterns and behaviors to creep back into your life. But now, maybe this evening is the right time to bring out into open confession that sin that Jesus is forcing you to see and to address. That sin that has crept back into your precincts. That sin that stands before you and a life of worship after God's own heart. Don't just pick up with the rest of this week. Don't rush off. Pause, sit. Bring these things before the Lord. For surely his word is challenged to each of us to look at the precincts in our heart and to ask him to come afresh, to cleanse them in his name. Amen. Well, as the musos come up, I'll... uh, I just want you to take a moment, actually. Why don't we just be quiet, reflect, thinking about what it would have been like as a young disciple to be at Jesus' side. What they must have been wondering and pondering and the reality of what Christ has done for us through his death on the cross. So a moment of quiet and then I'll pray. Father, we thank you 
that it was, as it were, that the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to stand in front of that tank, was willing to be mowed down, was willing to stand and die on, on our behalves because he saw, Lord, the, the utter and complete need. He saw our sinfulness. He saw that there was no other way. And so we thank you for his personal sacrifice. And Lord, we pray even this evening that we would bring those things that are heavy on our hearts, that have troubled us over many years. And for those, Lord, who have been wondering, have been seeking, have been inquiring of you, I pray even this evening through your spirit that you would help them to see that you are the one who's been calling them by name for years. You've just been waiting for you to, waiting for them to respond. So have mercy this evening and hear the cries and the prayers of your people in your name. Amen.